Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We are continuing our series in Isaiah 40 to 55, and this morning we are in Isaiah 42. Isaiah chapter 42, and I am going to read verses 1 through 10. So you please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands Wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. This is God's holy word for us as people. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and bless now, we plead with you, the preaching of your word. Make it powerful, living and active in our lives. Make it resound in our ears and write your truth upon our hearts that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and be more like him and be a more faithful witness for him in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our world today is obsessed with two words. Two ideas, two utopian ideals. If we could somehow, just somehow, attain these two things, we believe, we will reach that 
perfect world we all long for. Like the twin capstones in our own Tower of Babel. If we could only achieve these two great virtues, we could then build our own tower to heaven and look as gods upon the earth. Remember what this series in Isaiah is all about. God the Creator glorifies Himself by triumphing over our false gods. And God the Redeemer glorifies Himself by delivering us from our exile into sin and death. Through the mighty and wondrous works of creation and redemption, God reveals His glory to us so that we might know Him as He truly is and that we might worship Him as He truly deserves, as the God of matchless majesty and measureless mercy. Behold your God and forsake your idols. That's what this series is all about. And our world today, no less than the ancient world, has its fair share of idols. Now we're not carving them into little images and figurines and building temples and sticking them in there. And we're not worshiping idols the way the ancient world did. But we have them. And we have our own new modern ways of worshiping them. What are these two words that I've mentioned? These two words that our culture and our politics are obsessed with. What are these two things our society cares so much about? Now there may be multiple candidates for the answer, but here are the two I came up with. My two candidates are this. Safety and justice. Safety and justice. The past two years have proven beyond doubt what our two greatest values really are. The two biggest issues that have consumed like a black hole all our attention and all our energy as a nation have been COVID-19 and the perception of systemic oppression of minorities, especially racial minorities. Everything has been about these two things. Everything. And it tells us what we care most about. Is it safe? Is it right? And we believe that if we could just make everyone perfectly safe, and if we could just make our society perfectly just, then we will at last attain our perfect world. And that does sound pretty good. Absolutely no risk and no danger, so perfect safety, and absolute justice. No one ever does anything wrong to anybody else. Perfect. That sounds wonderful. But as Milton Freeman once said, who are these angels who are going to come down from heaven and give us this perfect world? None of us can do it. The problem is we think we can. We think we can. And I'll tell you, uh, here's the proof. I, I'm sitting in my office this morning, a few minutes after 10. I'm going over my notes, and my phone buzzes. I get these Apple News alerts that pop up. 
I just, I didn't turn them off and I should have and I regret it every time. These things pop up and it's like, okay, what craziness is happening now? So, this is what popped up. A 17-minute blog, in, blog interview popped up. Here's the title. The, the blog is called In Conversation. Here's the subject. Inside the Science Behind Life Extension and the End of Death. A growing field of experts seeks to rewrite the limits of the human lifespan. The actual science that may eventually yield the keys to immortality is in its infancy, and there are several promising areas of research. And then the next line is, can science cure death? It sure looks like it. So this is like up to the minute relevant. I can't do any better than that. We really believe that with enough science and social engineering, if we just get the right economics and the right president and the right policies and the right people in place, we can do it. We can make our perfect world. Do you know what that is? That, that stuff I just read you? And this belief that just we have and that sort of inspires the way we behave publicly as a society. Do you know what that is? It's theology. It's theology. It's an alternative theology to the teaching of Scripture. And beneath all the political and cultural and economic surface that gets all the attention... Beneath the surface of all that and beneath this social justice movement, beneath all that, is theology. Because you have, you have science and politics and culture and society that kind of floats here, and then you have philosophy and worldview that's here, and underneath that is who you think God is and what kind of God you think He is. It's theology at the bottom. Sometimes people say that uh, politics is downstream of culture. You ever heard that? Everything is downstream of theology. Theology is an incipient civilization. It's the seed out of which whole civilizations are born. That's why I said a, a couple sermons ago, Quoting A.W. Tozer, who you think God is, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's also the most important thing about a society. Underneath all the stuff that we see going on is ultimately an unbiblical liberation theology that preaches a false social gospel. Now, the reason that I'm saying that the social justice movement is a theology is because God is also passionate about justice. Let's leave safety aside and let's just talk about justice. Yahweh is a God of righteousness, justice, and truth. Psalm 9 verse 7, The Lord sits enthroned forever, he has established his throne for justice. 
Psalm 37, 28. The Lord loves justice. Psalm 97, 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Finally, Psalm 103, 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So you see, God is passionate about bringing forth justice in His fallen, unjust world. That's biblical. The problem with our culture is not our passion for justice or our hatred of injustice. That's the right instinct to have. Rather, the problem we have is with our version of justice. Our own version of injustice and the way we think we ought to establish our version of justice and get rid of injustice. There's where the problem is. So assuming the very best, assuming the very best of those among us who passionately advocate for social justice, assuming the best beneath all our well-meaning goals and beneath all our best laid plans and beneath all our good intentions is a false theology, a false gospel, and ultimately... A false God. If you are concerned or upset or angry or anxious over the state of our country and the trajectory of our society, as many people are, recognize that the problems we face are ultimately theological in nature. They're not ultimately social, political, cultural, or economic, or legal. Ultimately, they are theological in nature, and that's where the problems must be addressed, at that bottom line level. At the end of the day, our ultimate underlying problem is idolatry. In our passage this morning, Isaiah shows us the true God and the true biblical version of God's justice. And he does this in verse 1 by bringing our attention to his servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's where our focus will be today. The servant of God. And actually in this chapter we're going to see three servants. Three servants of God. And with these three servants, Isaiah gives us a picture of injustice, number 1. That's the failed servant in your handout. A picture of injustice, the failed servant. Number 2, the embodiment of divine justice, the faithful servant. And then number 3, a vision of the future when God's justice is fully and finally established in his unjust world. The freed servant. So let's turn to the scriptures and see how God accomplishes his passion for justice so that we might turn from our idols to serve this true God. We begin at the end of the chapter. Isaiah refers to Israel as his servant in verses 18 through 25. And this section of the chapter is an indictment 
against Israel as the servant of God, who has miserably failed in his service. At this point in history, in the text, Israel has been exiled from their land because they failed to keep their end of the covenant that God made with them through Moses on Mount Sinai. Israel broke covenant with God, so God exacted the covenant curses upon his people for their unfaithfulness to him and their law. This section describes Israel, the failed servant, in their state of sin and misery. And this is a representation of all God's human creatures in this fallen state. I once heard a rabbi say, The Jews are just like everyone else, only more so. (laughs) And what he meant was, if you look at the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, you can see in them a representation of what has gone wrong with all of humanity. You can see a representation of what's gone wrong. The Jews are just like everybody else, us, only more so. So let's see what the fallen condition is. And remember the point here. What's the ultimate problem with our world? Is it injustice? Yes, but what kind? Yes, but what kind? Let's look at the text. Isaiah gives us four conditions that the human race is in, represented by his servant Israel, the failed servant in this passage. I'll just highlight these. Number one, there is a lack of spiritual perception. Look at verse 18. He says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? That's Israel. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. That's what Holmes said to Watson, isn't it? You see, my dear Watson, but you do not observe. That's Israel's problem. They have eyes, they have ears, they can't see, they cannot hear. They are spiritually deaf They are spiritually blind. They have lost their spiritual perception. If you go up to a statue and you say, Excuse me, Mr. Statue, can you tell me who this picture is? Who's in this picture? He cannot see. He cannot respond. He cannot hear you. He has no ability to perceive you. And that's what the unbelieving, unregenerate person is spiritually before God. They have no perception, no ability to see or hear. And this is what we're all like. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So you've got Jesus in the gospel brimming, beaming with glorious gospel light and they're blind. If the clouds were to part 
at high noon and the sun and its brilliance were beaming down upon you, you could open your eyes and look straight into it and couldn't see a thing if you're blind. It doesn't matter how bright the sun is, if you have no life in your eyes, you cannot see And that leads to the next condition, verses 21 through 23. We don't just have a lack of spiritual perception where we're numb to the things of God, but we have a lack of spiritual freedom, a loss of spiritual freedom. God gave His people a law of righteousness, a magnificent and glorious covenant for His people to obey. Verse 21, The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law and make it glorious. He's talking about Mount Sinai. Nehemiah 9 describes it. He says, By pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes by a law and a law by Moses your servant. So God comes down on Sinai. He gives them this glorious law. But what do they do? Verse 22, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Israel violated the covenant, came under the curse, and was exiled from their land. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam broke covenant with God. He brought upon himself and all his posterity the covenant curses. And in him, all of us were exiled from Eden to live in this fallen world. And that's where we live, east of Eden. Hosea 6-7, speaking of Israel, like Adam, they, Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so we are trapped in spiritual holes. We are in spiritual bondage. We are plundered and looted and imprisoned. We are in bondage to sin, in bondage to death, in bondage to the world, the flesh, the devil. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And God asks this question right in the middle of this section, verse 23. He says, who among you will give ear to this? He just said they're deaf. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? In other words, is anybody paying attention? Anybody listening? Anybody get the point? Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We are spiritually insensitive. We have lost all spiritual perception. And we have lost our spiritual freedom. Third, we are subject to the judgment of God. Verse 24. Verse 24, God says, Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderer? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? 
So God handed Israel over to the looters and the plunderers. And when we come under the judgment of God, He hands us over to be looted and plundered and trapped and imprisoned as well. Sometimes we think about God's judgment as like the big lightning bolt that's going to hurl down and, you know, the earth's going to open up and swallow us and like some big obvious thing's going to happen. But actually, read Romans 1, 18 through 32. God's judgment is way worse and much more terrifying than lightning bolts. He's not Zeus. He doesn't use lightning. He actually unleashes you to pursue what your wicked heart wants. And he lets you run headfirst into destruction. And to think you're having a great time. And to think you're doing exactly what you want. That's what God does. Read Romans 1, 18 to 32. He just hands you over to run wild in your iniquity and straight into your own ruin. And that's far more terrifying. Under the judgment of God. And so when we see things, wickedness running rampant and things falling apart, it's, it's worthwhile asking, could this be signs of God's judgment? Has He turned us loose? Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't, but it's at least worth considering. It's one of the ways God's judgment falls as he lets iniquity have its way with us. Fourth thing of our spiritual condition. Loss of spiritual perception. Lack of spiritual freedom. Subject to the judgment of God. And then finally, sentenced to the wrath of God. Verse 25, it says, So he poured on him the heat of his anger. And the might of battle, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned Israel up, but he did not take it to heart. The wrath of God fell upon his people in the form of a bloody war. Fiery destruction, exile to a foreign land. In our fallen condition, we are also under the wrath of God. God's judgment in this life eventually culminates in final condemnation in hell. That's our problem. That's what's wrong with the world. Not this surface level stuff. Yeah, that stuff's messed up too. But why? What's underneath? This is the fate of the failed servant. Wayward humanity. Isaiah holds up this failed servant, Israel, as the representative of biblical injustice. Biblical justice and biblical injustice are defined exclusively by God's law and by God's covenant and nothing else. And so what I want us to do is begin to think like Christians and to not get caught up in what the narrative is or what the media says is the ultimate problem. We have the key. We have the scriptures. We have this insight into the, the abyss of cavernous evil that's inside of all of us. And that's the issue. What's wrong with the world? I am. Me. Pastor Wesley is broken and sinful and needs Jesus. And his congregation is the same way. And so is the rest of us. 
That's our issue. And it's because of that problem where all the other brokenness and messiness and evil comes from because we're fallen. And so all of our societies, neighborhoods, civilizations, cultures, systems, institutions, you know, all of it, our relationships, it's all messed up by sin. The ultimate problem with the world really is injustice. But it's our injustice against God. It's our own covenant-breaking unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. The problem is the iniquity in our hearts, not the inequity in our societies. Our rebellion against God the Creator is the root problem with the world and with each of us. And social justice, no matter where you fall on that issue, for, against, in between, wherever you fall on that issue, it can't heal our brokenness. And it cannot bring us the salvation we want. Social gospels never do. They never go deep enough. The demon is too deep. We need a gospel that goes all the way down and pulls him out. This kind only comes out with prayer and fasting, Jesus said. We are the failed servant, and so we need the faithful servant to save us. That brings us to point two, the faithful servant. We began at the end of the chapter with the failed servant, and now we come back to the beginning of the chapter to see the faithful servant. Where Adam and Israel have fallen and failed, God raises up another servant who will succeed where they failed and who will triumph where they have fallen. This is why the chapter begins with those words, Behold my servant, the special servant of Yahweh. And this servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 12 quotes this very passage at the beginning of Isaiah 42 and says it is fulfilled in the faithful servant, the Savior, Jesus. And notice who this Savior is. Notice the nature of this servant. Start reading with me in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. What does this tell us? This is God speaking. So you have God saying, behold my servant, I put my spirit on him. Can you count to three? God, servant, spirit. Here we have the Trinity. Here we have a member of the Trinity. God the Father sends His Son, gives Him the Holy Spirit in His incarnation, and unleashes Him to fulfill His divine mission. This is a member of the Trinity. This is God's own Son. And what's his mission? End of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. His mission is to bring forth God's justice to the ends of the earth. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This servant does not bring his justice with riots. He does not lift up his voice in the streets. It's a whole different approach. 
It says in verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus comes and fulfills the mission God gave him to obey perfectly in his commission, to accomplish for us a perfect righteousness, and then to die for our sin and be raised from the dead so that he can send forth his righteousness, his justice to the ends of the earth. And how do we get it? We put our faith in the faithful servant. We put our faith in the faithful servant. Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness or justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's revealed by the faithful servant for the one who has faith. In the righteousness of Christ, we find the justice that we need. And in following the law of Christ, we find the measures for being a just people and having a just world. It's in obedience to Jesus. Faith in Him and obedience to Him. And look what happens when we do this. Verses 7 through 9. Jesus comes. Remember that injustice, the injustice we just talked about? Spiritual blindness and death and no spiritual freedom and all that? Look at verse 7. Jesus comes to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Jesus comes to liberate, to save, to redeem those who are oppressed, oppressed by sin and death and the devil. And He unleashes His justice, which destroys the works of the enemy and makes us right with God. And liberates us from our sin and our darkness and our bondage. This is the glory of God the Redeemer. Accomplished through Christ the faithful servant. The problem is our own injustice against God. And the faithful servant comes. Who obeyed where we failed. So that in him we can be restored to the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is the good news. This is the gospel. And we come now to the final servant. Isaiah 42 has the the, uh, failed servant, the faithful servant, and then right in the middle... Verses 10 to 17, we see the freed servant. The freed servant. What is the result of God's faithful servant bringing God's justice to the ends of the earth? Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants... Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages of Kadar, the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. What's the result? Step one, in every nation of this world, 
God has a blood-bought believing people, freed from their injustice, freed from their sin, rebels who have been turned into worshipers. God has a worshiping people who praise His name and who then go into their own communities and into their neighborhoods and they bring the justice of Jesus, the message of the gospel and the obedience to Him that the gospel brings. And they let that light shine. And they bring every error and false notion captive to obey Jesus. That's step one. And at the end, at the end, when the Great Commission has had its way with the world, then the end comes when the Lord returns and He will finish off the wickedness in His world. Not us. This is what we see in verse 14. For a long time I've held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. The return of the Lord will finish the job. This is the message we have. This is the truth of the Scriptures. And this is what we are to be proclaiming. This message, these truths, this is to be the focus. This is to be how we as Christians think through the next headline and the next crazy thing and the next, the next event and the next problem and the next atrocity and the next tragedy. This is how we think through all these things. We see what's being said and what's being told and we bring it back to the Scriptures and we see what the Scriptures have to say and we let them be our guide and to be our judge. We believe the Gospel and we know that that's the ultimate answer for the problems of the world. Ultimately, we will have a world free from all sin, free from idolatry. We will have that world where we are perfectly safe and there's no injustice at all. But the way we get there is the cross. The way we get there is the empty tomb, the resurrection, the gospel message sacrificial love, bearing witness to Him. That's what we're supposed to be about. Never confuse social agendas with the gospel. Social gospels are false gospels. Preach the true gospel. Be the light and love of Christ to those you come into contact with. Don't let the idols of our culture and our time snatch your allegiance from King Jesus. Know what true justice is. Know what true injustice is. Know what the answer is. And then open your mouth and say it. And open your door and get out there in the world and live it. This is our message. Flee your idols. Serve King Jesus. He has the answer to our problems. And in His kingdom, which is coming, we will have that perfect world we always wanted. In His name, in His time, and for His glory. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we thank you so much that you've given us such a mighty gospel, that you've given us the clarity and power of your Holy Spirit and Holy Scriptures that he inspired. We pray that you would take this truth of the gospel, that you would truly make us believe it down deep in the core of who we are, and that you would turn us loose upon the world to be your light, to be your witnesses, to be your people who worships you and sings your praise and who corrects all those false ideas that are floating around us and calls out the idols for what they are, mere idols. And we point our friends, our family, our neighbors, our jobs, our co-workers, our communities, our society, our world. We point them back to the Scriptures. And we say we are all fallen in Adam. We have all gone astray. The evil of our society comes from our own hearts. We are the problem. We need to repent. We need to trust Jesus. We need to believe in Him and His gospel and to obey Him and His word. Oh, make us those people who are bold. Make us vertebrates. (laughs) Put steel in our spines so that we could stand in this evil time. Lord, we thank you for all the many good things you've given us in our country. And we pray for it today. And we ask that you would begin to heal it, that you would do it in your way, through your church, that you would raise up a mighty church to proclaim this news and to live it out in front of a watching world. Not to please anybody else but you alone. Oh, that we would please you, even if all the world turns against us. Give us that courage. You've given us all we need in the Word. Now give us that courage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.